we're in 1 John. We're starting a new series this morning that will carry us through the summer months, the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And just a reminder again, these are out front. Uh, these are journals um, that contain the text of 1st John on the one side, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the text on one side, lined blanks on the other side so that you can take notes, um, either as part of what you're doing during sermons or your devotional time, just things that, that jump out to you from 1st John. So those are handy little um, reference tools to have, and they are available out front. We ask for a $4 donation. Um, that is considerably cheaper than our good friends at Amazon, so uh, if you are able to do that, please do. Six summers ago, six summers ago, yeah, we did uh, a preaching series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and as I was been reading and meditating on 1 John over these last few weeks, it strikes me that there's some similarities between the Old Testament book that we typically attribute to King Solomon and the New Testament book that we attribute to the Apostle John. Both books do not identify the author by name in terms of the, within the text itself. You have to sort of deduce authorship based on um, the both internal evidence of the writing style, maybe similarities to other things, and try to draw from what, what you read from within the text, and then also from historical sources outside of the text who were peers or followed that generation and, and who they attributed authorship to, and, and, and both strongly attribute authorship to Solomon and to, to John when it comes to 1 John. But both books, I guess what really struck me is both books are written by guys who are in the latter years of their life light way of saying they were old. Um, they, were, they were seasoned saints. And, that, that, and that, that's a good thing. Amen. All the seasoned saints are saying amen to that. Amen. And there's something about that in terms of they are writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is God's word. But they are also writing from wisdom and from experience gained from, from years of of living out the life that they have. And, and it's interesting, you see in, in Solomon, there, there's sort of a having learned the hard way some of these lessons. And in John, there's sort of a, I, I saw, I heard what Jesus taught and I've seen it now and I've experienced it. And in both cases, there's almost a sense of which they are trying to communicate to peers and to those younger to live for what matters, that they are nearing the end and want to exhort us to live for what matters, not only for eternity, but even for the present. Solomon's message essentially boils down in chapter 12 to fear God. Remember your creator and fear God and obey his commandments. Very clear at the end of Ecclesiastes what his conclusion is. He has sampled all sorts of worldly pleasures. He has tried all of these things out, looking for for some kind of delight, some kind of meaning. And when he's come to the end of it, he said, ultimately it is fearing God. When you come to the end of life, you won't wish for more of those pleasures. You will wish as a believer that you will have known God better, that the one you are about to meet, that, that you will have meditated on him. It, almost 40 times in Ecclesiastes, it speaks of knowledge or knowing. And this is important. I want to relate this to 1 John in just a moment. But about 40 times, he speaks of knowledge or knowing. And in Solomon's case, it's typically knowledge that he's talking about. I, I wanted to know this. I, I studied this to try to know it, to try to gain knowledge. And he ultimately, time after time, you see him come to the place of, of sort of bumping up against the frailty of, of the human mind and saying, I couldn't understand it. Or when I did come to know it, what I realized is it was fleeting and foolish, that it really 
didn't matter in the broad scheme of things as much as I thought that it did. First John also speaks of knowledge about 40 times. He touches on knowing or knowledge. And in John's case, it's typically related to Jesus and to the gospel. It is a knowledge of, of Christ. It is a knowledge of what Christ has done. And John, John has at least two purposes in, in so emphasizing this knowledge of Jesus and what he's done. First purpose is he's writing to people who are being confronted by error. We're going to see that as we work our way through 1 John, that as he's, he's writing to believers in churches where there is false teaching coming in, and the false teaching really is revolving around the person of Jesus and who Jesus is and what he did. And so John is having to confront that, having to say, no, this is who Jesus is, and, and this is what is true. But the second reason that he emphasizes the knowledge of Jesus so much and knowledge of what Jesus has done is ultimately to give assurance to those who really do believe the truth, who really do know who Jesus is, and to say, listen, I know that there's, there's all of this error that, that's spreading, and, and there's all of this sort of redefining of Jesus, and you're maybe questioning and wondering, is this Jesus whom, whom I have trusted in, is that right? Is, is he the one? And I am here to assure you that this is the unchanging truth about Jesus, that which was proclaimed to you through the Gospels, through, through John's own Gospel, about who Jesus is and what he's done, that has not changed. There is no, no new version of Jesus. And so if you believe that and you trust in him, then hold fast to that. That is an anchor for your soul. That is your assurance. And that's why we've called this sermon series Assurance. The idea that believing what it is about Jesus that the scriptures teach, in particular here in 1 John, ultimately gives us great hope. And you see it in the opening verses. Let me read verses 1 through 3 to get us started. 1 John 1, 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. I know it's the end of the school year. For those of you in college, you're done. Some of you others are still got a little bit more to go, but just a little bit of grammar here, because I think it's helpful. You'll notice as you look at verses one through three, there's only one period. It, it's there at the end. And you'll also notice there's dashes and commas, and you're trying to find a subject and a verb, and you're sort of struggling your way through like, that which, is that a who, is that a what, the life that was made manifest. One commentator calls verses one through three a grammatical tangle. And, and it is a, a difficult passage. And in fact, the, the main verb isn't until you get down to verse three, when he says, what, that, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. That's the main verb here is we are, we are proclaiming this to you. And so this is pointing back to what he's been talking about, which then we need to understand. What is that which? What does this all mean? John is proclaiming a message. And in fact, to be more accurate, he's proclaiming a testimony because that's what he says right from the beginning. This is, this is from eyewitness. This is seen, heard, touched. 
and we're proclaiming this to you, so he's giving a testimony. Now, before we look at that opening testimony, just take note of this fact. First John is not like a lot of New Testament letters, um, similar probably to Hebrews, but not to the rest in terms of it doesn't have that traditional greeting at the beginning, doesn't say from the Apostle John to the believers at, it, none of that. He just jumps in and says, that which was from the beginning. And so that just goes to the authorship issue that we have to understand from, from both history and, and history, the early church history, the first few centuries, this would have been written late in the first century, somewhere around 80, 85, um, the year 85 that this would have been written. So the centuries that follow are almost unanimous in attributing this to the Apostle John. The earliest quotes of 1 John attribute this back to John. And so we have church history that supports that. But then you've also got similarities. You're looking for sort of internal clues, words, themes that sort of point to a particular writer. And you probably have already sensed this as we read those first three verses. There are some strong similarities to the Gospel of John. Let me read the first three verses of the Gospel of John and just look at some of the things that, that line up. In John 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So you see some similarities. He's emphasizing the beginning, the Word he's using as a title, and that we see in 1 John, we'll talk about in a moment, and the idea of being with the Father, that there's some kind of closeness, some kind of relationship with the Father. All things you see in those first verses of 1 John that you also see in the Gospel of John. And then, of course, the Gospel of John in, in the first chapter, verse 14, says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Which, again, now sounds like 1 John 1, 2, which says this one who was with the Father now has been made manifest, now has been seen by us, now has been revealed to us. And so the Gospel of John begins its record, Gospel of John, with eternity past, prior to creation. In the beginning was the Word. He's talking beginning for us. It is beginning of human history, beginning of creation, but, but we understand that what, what he's doing is he's going back to before creation and saying this one already existed because all things came into being through him. He must have existed before because all things were made by him and through him, it says in John 1, 3, and Paul affirms later in Colossians chapter 1. So this one that, that the gospel of John is clearly talking about, the word, is an agent that the Father uses in creation. He brings all things to, into existence. And, and so John, in his Gospels, clearly telling us that Jesus is fully God. He was not just with God. He, he reigned as God and then becomes flesh, then becomes manifest to us. Well, John returns to that very same starting point in 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning. It's the language that echoes Genesis 1, that echoes John 1, that says the beginning, the inauguration of creation, this one already was because it all came into being through him. It's not the, it's not the beginning of God. God is eternal. Habakkuk asked that, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? God is the preexistent one who speaks the universe into existence and, and then forms man from out of the dust of the earth. And that's what 1 John 1.1 1, 1 is referring to when it says our testimony is about that which was from the beginning, something that was, was preexistent and now has been revealed and, and we have seen. But what's unusual about verse 1, and 
One more point of grammar, I promise for those of you who didn't do well in English, this will be the last one for this morning, is that the pronoun that he uses, and this is what confuses us in 1 John 1, 1, is neuter. It's not masculine. It doesn't say he who was from the beginning, which is kind of what we want it to say, because then it would be very clear. It says that which was from the beginning. And so that's why we're left sort of going, why? Why does he say that which, and what does he mean by that? And what I'd suggest to you is, it's not simply the person of Jesus that John is seeking to bring to the forefront. It's more than that. And in fact, he, he hints at it at the end of verse 1. He has said that which was from the beginning. We've heard, we've seen, we've looked upon, we've touched concerning the word of life. That that, that which, this, this, this one that was from the beginning that we saw, heard, and touched has something to do with life. A, 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 a revelation of life. That's what the idea of word is, an expression of life. And then, in fact, he elaborates on that. In verse 2, this life was made manifest we te and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And so now we're starting to see that this one that he's talking about, it's not just the person, but it's the implications of the coming of this person because this person has come with a, a proclamation, a revelation that has to do with eternal life. We know that John in his gospel used the word as a, as a title for Jesus. And, and we, we use that because the, a word is an expression of something. It reveals something. When, you, you, when, when Adam named the animals, that sort of put a label on them. You understood who they were. And so a word exposits something, if you will. And, and so he uses word to say that Jesus reveals God to us. That's why we talk about the word of God, because it, it shows us God's will and his ways in scripture. But also Jesus is the word and that he reveals God to us. And so this focus on the word, and, and 1 John now brings it up again, the word of life. And in fact, in verse 2, it's a proclamation that has to do with eternal life. So yes, in 1 John 1, John is talking about Jesus. He is the one who was with the Father, as he's emphasized here um, in verse 2, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, the one who was with the Father and revealed to us. And Jesus is that life. So he's not just strictly emphasizing the person, he's emphasizing the life-giving aspect of Jesus, the, essentially the gospel. Jesus said this himself, right? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus gives life to all who hear and believe him, to all who trust in him. There is life. There is eternal life. And Jesus himself is eternal. Verse 2 emphasizes that at the end, which was with the Father and was made manifest, describing this eternal life. Jesus himself is eternal, but it's really emphasizing that he is the source of eternal life. He is the one who, who brings eternal life, who now reveals to man that there is eternal life and you may have that through Jesus. And so you see that in verse 2. John is proclaiming the eternal life that was with the Father, that's Jesus, who was with the Father in eternity before creation. So you've got the Son as distinct from the Father and yet in, with him, in, in harmony with him, in fellowship is the word we'll use because that's what he's going to use here in just a moment is in complete fellowship with the Father. But most importantly for you and I, Verse 2 is saying this, this same eternal life, this life that is everlasting, 
has now been made manifest to you and I. It's now revealed to you and I, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. It is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope of life, of eternal life. And, and so John is saying the eternal one, the one that we saw now because he became manifest to us, we saw and heard and touched, has come to proclaim that there is, there is the possibility for people to have eternal life. Through his incarnation, we can now partake of the same sort of intimate fellowship that existed in eternity past and continues to exist between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that is now being revealed to man to know and to believe. So in verse 1, that which is Jesus, but, but John is using the neuter pronoun to say it's not just the person. This isn't simply a, a history here. This isn't about just the life of the man from Nazareth. That's crucial, and you need to know who this person is, but it's, it's all that surrounds, it's the implications of this person. John's testimony is about Jesus as being eternal God who took on flesh, who came to dwell among man, who then died on the cross in a sacrifice for our sin, taking our sin and our judgment on himself. It's, it's that whole message of eternal life and then of the resurrection to life that, that he's trying to communicate here, that, that the whole gospel message is what's at the center of this. And so, yes, there was the seeing, hearing, and touching of Jesus the man, and John is giving us the eyewitness testimony, but it is the implication of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what Jesus taught that, that John is emphasizing because he was not just a man. He was not just a rabbi. He was not just a good teacher, as so many seek to try to classify Jesus as. And, and we'll see in just a moment, that's part of the error that, that John is bumping up against, his people are, are, are bumping up against, is the idea that you know, he was just a guy. The, the importance of this to John is very clear, because he's got these two schools of wrong thinking, two opposite extremes that are out there and that are infiltrating the churches. Uh, and on the one side is the just a guy sort of perspective, that the idea that these false teachers are telling Christians, well, that, that could not have been God in flesh. That was a rabbi from Nazareth. And he was a good rabbi, and he taught well, and he taught about love, and that's all important. And we'll see that when we get down to, to chapter 2, the, the idea that Jesus was not the chosen Messiah of God. And that's part of what Paul is, uh, John is confronting here in, in, in this introduction. But then when you get to chapter 4, you see that, the other extreme, the other false teaching on the other side of the pendulum is denying that Jesus came in the flesh. This is the side that says, okay, maybe, maybe the Messiah, maybe the chosen one, but, but that wouldn't be in flesh because flesh is bad. Flesh is sinful, and so you wouldn't see God in flesh, so it would be just some kind of spirit being. And, and John is just coming right up against that, and so he says right from the start, no, this one is eternal, he is God, and we saw him, heard him, and he adds, touched him for the very purpose of confronting the false teaching that says, eh, it's just some kind of spirit being that maybe you dreamed up or maybe you heard from in some way, but, but, but not, not a real man. And so John, at the very start of this book, essentially throws down the gauntlet and says, what has been taught to you, church, about Jesus the incarnate Son of God, 
pre-existent God taking on flesh, giving his life on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin, and rising from the dead, and rising in bodily form, and again seen and touched by his disciples, that hasn't changed. None of this has changed. And so when you get teachers who come and say, we've got Jesus 2.0, and it's actually this, this is who Jesus is, and, and, and sort of varying on the truth, he says, no, this the good news is still the good news. Trust in Christ for who he says he is. And when you do, then he's going to go on and emphasize the enjoyment of fellowship and joy that we'll get to. But John really wants believers to be able to confront error and to have assurance when they're starting to ask questions and get doubts because of what they're hearing. Be assured the gospel we taught you it remains sufficient. It is sufficient for life. It is sufficient for eternal life. It will save you, and it will bring you into union with your creator. And this message about who Jesus is and what he has done is what John is giving testimony to. That's, that's why he says, this is what we're proclaiming. That's why I'm, in, in, in large part, again, I, I, I would take you to the, the idea that John is, is older at this point, and John is saying, the, the things that I saw and heard... I've now had a few decades to live these things out and to experience, and I'm here to tell you, he hasn't changed. Jesus is still the one I am in fellowship with, and that's who I'm proclaiming. And so then verse 3, let's just, he gives us so that now in verse 3. Here's where that main verb is, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim, we are proclaiming also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John is testifying of who Jesus is, saw, heard, touched, the whole, all the implications, so that you, his reader, can be assured of fellowship with us, he says, so that we can be in community together, all holding to the same truths of who Jesus is, but more importantly, it's fellowship with God. It's fellowship with Christ. I, I am proclaiming these things to you so that together we would believe the truth about Jesus, that the eternal Son of God became a man and we heard him and saw him and he gave himself in flesh and he died and he rose again. And by believing in that, you can have fellowship with God. Back in the Gospel of John, John, at, at near the end of the Gospel of John, gives his purpose statement after telling the life of Christ and describing the miracles and the works that Jesus has done and his death and his life and his resurrection. He comes to the end of the Gospel of John and he says, there, books and books could be filled with pages and pages that could tell. But, but he says in John 20, 31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have, what? Life in his name. I wrote this to you so that you would not settle for believing that Jesus was a mere person or merely a good teacher, but that he is the God-man, that he is the Son of God, and that he came to give himself for you and offers you life and will give you eternal life if you will believe in him, if you will trust in him. And so in his introduction to 1 John, he's not rehashing all the elements of the gospel. We'll, we'll see those as we work our way through 1 John. But he is stating unequivocally that the good news about Jesus that I wrote to you before that you might have eternal life by believing in, in him is still the good news. It has not changed. 
Jesus is who he said he is, and because Jesus came and gave his life, we, and, and, and this is really the, the amazing part, we can have fellowship with the transcendent, holy, powerful, eternal creator of the universe. That should cause us to pause when he says that in verse 3, because we've talked about that word fellowship. We did just last week when we were in Philippians chapter 1, when Paul speaks about his fellowship with the Philippian believers, his partnership, as he used the words in Philippians 1, but the same word for fellowship. And here's John using the same word to describe the ultimate end of why he is writing. John wants his readers, and therefore the word of God wants us as readers to experience real communion with each other that arises from, depends on, rests on completely our common belief and trust in Jesus Christ and our fellowship with him. Because of union with Christ, we can have this unique communion together, this fellowship together. And so talk about false teaching but and doctrinal clarity and confronting error and confronting false teaching all important the truth matters but at the end of it John is saying I want you to enjoy fellowship with God I want you to I, I want you to enter into this friendship this relationship this partnership this communion with God I, I would say to you again this is the the older wiser apostle who has experienced his fair share of tragedy and sorrow and hardships and temptations and suffering. He's, he's lived a long life. He has been through all that, now even facing persecution. And John is writing to brethren who also live in the midst of a trying world full of hardship and suffering and evil and temptations and false teaching. And he is writing to say to God's people, I want to give you hope. In the midst of this, I want to give you assurance that if you will trust in the Savior, that he has not changed. Rest in him. Think about, think about the hard experiences you've walked through in life. Think about the sorrows. Think about the, 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 the difficult times. Think about the temptations. Some of you, maybe you've, you've even experienced levels of persecution. You've had people ostracize you because of your faith in Christ or treat you differently because of your faith in Christ. Think about those things. And, and, and let me ask you this. What, what would make the experience of those sorrows even worse than they are in and of themselves? And I would suggest to you being alone in the midst of those. If you've walked through a difficult season of life and you've largely felt alone through that, you understand just the, the weight of that time, the, the sadness, it, it just seems to be magnified when there's loneliness involved. Trials and suffering and mistreatment can all be trying, but endure them alone without the compassion of someone who is like-minded, without the care of a, a friend, a brother, somebody who will walk with you and and listen to you, and exhort you, and encourage you, and pray for you, and experience that loneliness. That's why fellowship is so important. That's why what John is holding out here is one who would experience exile on the island of Patmos, and, and being away from the, the community of believers. That's why he's, he's saying, brothers, sisters, cling to Christ. There is nothing sweeter 
than fellowship in the community that's based on fellowship with Christ, based on communion with him because of what we all know and believe and hold together. In John 14, 21, Jesus said this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John heard that. And here's John, flash forward decades, and John saying, I want you to know this. He said this, and I have lived this now. I have been loved by my creator. I have been loved by Jesus. I have been in union with Jesus, and I have never been abandoned. I have always had Christ. And, and he's just, this is John now just saying, what Jesus promised even if all others abandon you, even if you get sent off into exile, that fellowship with Christ, the love of the Father, there's nothing that, 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 that is better than that. And, and, and that's what he's desiring for his people to hear and to understand. His aim is not just that his readers be accurate about Jesus. His aim here is not even that we glory in our salvation from sin. That, as important as that is, Christ's death and resurrection for our sin and saving us from God's judgment and his wrath, as crucial as that is, John's, John's setting that to the side for just a moment, saying what's crucial here is experiencing fellowship with your creator and being loved by the Father and loved by Christ. That's what will bring you assurance now. Some of our, our greatest times of growth in the knowledge of who God is and his grace and power and strength come when we are in the middle of hardships. Because if during those times we can, by God's grace, keep our eyes fixed on him and we can continue to meditate on who he is and believe who he says he is and obey his commandments, there is fruit that comes from that. And often it is just the hope and comfort of assurance that he is present. And he has not abandoned you. And he is walking with you through this. To that end, John is testifying and proclaiming to his readers, we've seen this, we've heard this. It's not just, it's not just 30, 40, 50 years ago that I saw this. I've experienced this. And I have seen the faithfulness of my Savior. And I want you to experience that. I want to end with verse 4, but before we turn, I just want you to think about this fellowship with God piece for just a moment because we, we understand it theologically. We know this is eternal fellowship. This is fellowship that surpasses this life. It goes on into eternity. But, but I think John's actual concern here for his readers is your present fellowship with Jesus, your, your experience of communion with Jesus Monday through Friday, if you will. How's that going? How, how is that communion with Jesus going? We, we talk a lot about fellowship in terms of the body, how we gather, we serve one another, we love one another, we pray for one another, we rejoice with one another, we are together, we come together to exhort one another, and, and, and life in the body of Christ is pivotal to all this. He says fellowship with us, and so that's a key part of this, the horizontal experience of, of, of fellowship, because that's a way as the body of Christ that we experience Fellowship in Christ, but I guess I'm thinking, what does it look like for you to have ongoing communion with Jesus during the week? It, it, it's wonderful here from 10.30 to, to noon on Sunday, and maybe when you're looped into that really edifying podcast or you're reading that really great devotional, but then 
How's it looking throughout the week? How is that fellowship going? Because we don't get this blissful, trouble-free existence that we want. The world has fallen. It's full of the consequences of sin. We're in a world that is antagonistic toward those who believe in Jesus Christ. Elliot was referring to it before as he shared that testimony. We live in a world that, that, that takes on obedience to Christ. That if you are going to be obedient to Christ and you are going to stand for Christ, you're going to be confronted at some point or another by the world, not wanting you to do that, not wanting you to take that stand, not wanting you to be honest or, or showing those ethics or whatever it is in that situation. And so you will face that. The world is constantly tempting us to desire the things of the world, the stuff that's around us more than Christ, to, to want to have fellowship with the world and, and, and not to serve other people and to make those things primary. One of the repeated themes in 1 John that we're going to see is, is him saying, to those of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, you cannot persist walking in darkness. That those two, and we'll see it already next week, those two are incompatible. In fact, they are antithetical. If you say that you have fellowship with a holy God through Christ, you cannot continue to persist to walk in the darkness and not repent of that and want to turn from that. You should not be comfortable in the darkness. And, and 1 John will speak at length about these things. And to bounce off what we're seeing in verse 3, because as believers, these are things that hinder our fellowship with God, our, our, our sin, our, our our, our disobedience to God, and then even our, our stubborn reluctance sometimes to confess that sin. The, the, the blame shifting, the excuse making, the, the unwillingness to be humble and to confess our sin before him. All of that hinders our fellowship. Chapter 2 is going to specifically condemn just the, the sin of not loving our brothers. Driving wedges between us and other people because of pride or laziness or anger or whatever it is, but saying, I'm, I've had it, and, and that's it with that person, and just cutting them off. And so there's our hearts, there's all our own thoughts and deeds, there's the world, there's the barrage of attacks on those who would be faithful to Christ. There's all the temptation to, to doubt the gospel and doubt Jesus Christ. The world the world we know this despises a message that fundamentally begins with a holy God who revealed a perfect law to man and said, this is the standard and you fall short of this standard and because you cannot keep this standard, there must be a sacrifice. It requires the sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice that must die in your place. And, and the world despises the, the, the idea that you're calling me a sinner and that someone has to die in my place because of my sin. And yet, that's what scripture teaches. And so you've got the churnings of the flesh You've got the sin that we experience from other people. You've got the, the obstacles that come from the world and, and the challenges to faith in Christ and the gospel. How, how in the midst of that do we experience fellowship with Jesus? How do we keep striving for fellowship with him? And, and I, I think, you know, I'm not going to give you some sort of magical answer that you've never heard before. This is really simple stuff. Think about the person or thing in your life that you cherish. Think about those that you cherish that are close to you and how do you cultivate closeness with them? You prioritize them. When the phone rings, some numbers you look at and go, eh, and turn it over. When that one rings, you say, excuse me, I have to answer this, right? You prioritize that person. You spend time with that person. You, you, you enjoy 
time in conversation and in communion with that person. You communicate with that person. You're not just speaking, but you're speaking and you're listening. You're hearing what's going on in their life, right? And then big one that, that I think marks those relationships and when they thrive is you're humble enough to admit when you're wrong to that person. You're able to be transparent and to say, I blew it. That, that was completely on me and that was my attitude and, and I acknowledge it. The, the, the truth of the matter is, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, let's just be clear about this up front. You are in Christ. If you have put your hope in Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection, and the truth of the gospel, then, then the New Testament describes you as being joined to Christ. You are united to Christ. So this is not a question of salvation that I'm talking about here. This is the ongoing fellowship that we have as believers in Jesus Christ and our part in that. The salvation part is held by God's grace. He keeps us and holds us. But the growing in fellowship part ultimately comes down to, are we making Christ of utmost importance? Does he have that priority? Does that show in our time, talents, treasure, and all of the different ways that we emphasize you are important? Does Christ rise to that level in our daily lives? Does he have that time spent, that, that time spent in the word, in prayer, saying, I, I need to know you better, Jesus. I need to know your word. I need to know what it means to obey you. I need help in this. I need wisdom in this. And then chiefly when we fail at these things, does he hear our confession? Does he get our repentance? Does he hear us ask for forgiveness and acknowledge our sin to him? Because that's, that's really what the building of fellowship in the Lord is pursuing intimacy through worship, through the word, through prayer. It is, it is through community, but on all these individual levels, it is drawing near to him and being humble before him and, and doing everything we, we were singing about earlier that, Lord, I am desperate and I am clinging to you like a rock, not just because it's a bad time, but I, I need to do that all the time. In, uh, in John 15, Jesus described it as abiding in him remaining in him in John 15. Hold that thought, because look at verse 4, and then I want to come back to John 15 for a second. But First John 1, 4 says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Mm. Another so that. He ends with two so that's in this. We proclaim our testimony so that you may have fellowship with God. We write these things so that you may have ultimate joy, so that you may know joy that is unparalleled complete joy. What could be more satisfying? Now, I mentioned John 15. This is where Jesus takes the illustration of a vine and branches. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. You want to understand what it means to walk with me as, as those who are my disciples. Understand that I am the life-giving source and you can do nothing apart from me. You need to remain attached to me, abide in me, because when you do, he says in John 15, you will bear much fruit as you meditate on me, as you fellowship with me, as you know me, as you hear me, as you speak to me. That's all abiding and remaining. You will bear fruit. But then he says this near the end of this section in John 15, verse 9. Jesus speaking says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love, remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, 
that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John's not saying anything new in 1 John chapter 1. But what he's saying is, remember when Jesus said this? I can tell you this is what he meant. I've lived this. I've experienced this. And so here's John's testimony in 1 John 1, basically being an exposition of what Jesus taught in John 15. He doesn't want us to think of the gospel as only ticket to heaven, salvation from judgment. It is. It, it is trusting in Jesus Christ is eternal life. It is salvation. But he wants us to see that it is so much more than that because of who Jesus is and what he's done. We are able to have intimate fellowship with God and have joy as a result and have something that works within our hearts that gives us delight and contentment in him. He uses the same Greek word that Jesus used when Jesus said that your joy may be full is the same Greek word when he says that our joy may be complete, that you may have the greatest of joy. Mm. Now listen, on this side of eternity, we will never get to the state of perfect fellowship with God and thus we will never experience complete joy. It's just the reality of being in a fallen world, of being in bodies of flesh and dealing with temptation and all that goes with it. It's always going to be marred by our sin. So we'll never have perfect joy on this side. Sin, death, sorrows all intrude in our lives. Temptations are real and, and, and all will seek to undermine that. So this is not some unrealistic fantasy. Perfect fellowship and perfect joy will ultimately be ours in heaven. But Jesus came, and this is what John's trying to emphasize, Jesus came so that we can enter into that fellowship now. So we can begin to experience what it is to be nearer to God and to have communion with him and to cry out to him and experience that now. The Holy Spirit wants that as our daily experience, that we would understand meaning and purpose and have joy in life. May not, may not be perfect joy, still to come, but that doesn't diminish what he's saying here. I'm writing these things so that you would experience this joy, that you would know Christ. And I would just, in closing, I would just link this all back to verse 3 when he says that your fellowship may be with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. Because a chief way that I then experience the joy of fellowship with Jesus is by doing communion with us, is by doing fellowship with us. It is, the, it is the corporate sense of community, being part of a, a community that um, grace flows freely, that people are being transformed and we're seeing God at work. Uh, a, a community where repentance is sought and forgiveness is given, where, where those kinds of transactions are normal uh, and, and, and people love to, to be gracious to one another, where people love to serve together, love to love and worship Christ together, love to go out and love our community and serve together in that way. And so that, that community experience is all part of this fellowship. And he's saying, I want this for you. I want you to experience intimate communion with your creator and the joy that flows from it, and it will be eternal. That, that fellowship and that joy will only get better till the day when there are no more tears and no more sorrows and you enjoy perfect communion with him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming and
giving up the majesty, delights of heaven in order to take on flesh and to give yourself in the place of sinners, to die on the cross, and then to rise again. And to not merely keep that for yourself as a triumphant victory, but to then desire to share that victory with the same sinners who caused you to be on the cross, the same ones whose sin you bore. Lord Jesus, you are desirous of sharing the fruit of your suffering and your resurrection with. And so I I pray, Lord, this morning first, anybody watching online or here who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, who is skeptical about these things or doubtful or who has cried out to you before and and you haven't answered the way that they thought you should, or they're they're just not sure of where things go when, when eternity comes, when death comes. I pray that today they would hear your word offering this glorious invitation that says we, we long for you to experience fellowship with us and with the Father, and with the Son. Lord, thank you that the call of the gospel is to believe, to trust in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection and to believe that it is my sin that was paid for on that cross and that I have no claim on you Uh, that my only claim is through Jesus and through fellowship with him. And so I pray, Lord, that you might do the work that only your spirit can do to soften hearts, to to give life uh, even today. And Father, for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, thank you. Thank you for the gladness and the joy with which a seasoned saint like John speaks and says, "I've, I've, I've been there, I've seen this, I've done this, and I'm here to tell you that that Jesus Christ, in him there is joy. There is joy in hardship. There is joy in exile. There is joy in all of life. There's joy in growing old. Lord, there can be joy. And John speaks to us with that, that, that invitation to come to Christ and experience that fellowship and that joy. Help us as a body of believers to be a place where that sort of community and fellowship that is rooted in a common understanding and belief in Christ would flow generously. Lord, help us to to grow this week in our individual lives as people who would pursue fellowship with you when the, the world and the distractions and all of the things that would seek to monopolize our time and energy creep in, cause us to think back on this exhortation from Scripture and to desire to be with you, to read about you, to hear, to pray, to speak to you. And Lord, thank you that you bless that obedience, that you say again and again how you want to pour out your love and grace on those who follow after you. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.